everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well and staying safe. I don't have too much to add in terms of news to share these days. It seems this whole coronavirus situation is here to stay and I am uncertain I'll be able to return to China anytime soon. If the EU is refusing travelers from the US, I would assume China to do the same and probably for good reason. But otherwise, I don't have too much to complain about as I'm really lucky to have a roof over my head and I'm living in a rural area that is at the moment okay in terms of the outbreaks and finding basic goods and materials. And I still have my contract with the university in China and I'm able to teach remotely. So uh, in terms of the larger scheme of things, I'm very lucky to say the least. Uh, regarding the podcast, I've also been thinking more about the future direction I want to take this podcast, as I normally have been interviewing friends and others that I have met in person, but with the current situation, I have been thinking about expanding out and potentially talking to people who I have not met and cold emailing people that I would like to talk to. Of course, I'm a bit nervous about moving forward this way, Um I still have a number of interviews I still need to release before this happens, but the time will come soon enough, as it does for all of us. It may be for the better for this podcast, I don't know, but I will keep you updated. In any case, for today, I am interviewing Didier William, originally from Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Didier moved to Miami as a Creole-speaking six-year-old. His interest in art blossomed there, and he ended up earning his BFA in painting from the Maryland Institute College of Art and got his MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale University. Currently, Didier is an assistant professor of expanded print at the Mason Gross School of Arts at Rutgers University. I first met Didier while I was at residency in Vermont this past winter and was able to interview him around March just as COVID's presence began being felt in the U.S. and prior to the recent protests around the murders of George Floyd, Armand Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and the many others that have been surfacing with each passing week. As a result, Diddy and I don't chat about these events, and that's definitely something that I've been thinking about in terms of this podcast since I seem to end up releasing my episodes many, many weeks, sometimes months, sometimes a year from the time I do the interview and it's still something I've been thinking about. Um, But in any case, for this particular episode, Diddy and I chat about trying to find agency and stillness, the conscious privileging of certain languages, and maintaining an honest conversation about social complexities. Again, Stay safe, stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. Well, um, so right now I'm talking to Didier William, 
and I met him at Vermont's Youth Center, and we chatted a little bit, talked a little bit about horror films, and <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, yeah, I was doing some weird uh, video stuff that I'm still trying to figure out, but yeah, I was really, I really enjoyed today's talk, and I knew a little bit about today through my uh, friend Devin, and uh, yeah, and thank you so much for uh, letting me interview you for this podcast. Thanks for having me, Zero. Yeah. Um, so I guess I usually start off with like very easy questions. So like, how has your day been going? It's been going good. And I, um, because we're on lockdown, I worked out from home and came over to the studio and started to get set up for here. Normally Sundays would be like a sort of gym and studio day. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, today was a workout from home and come into the studio day, which, which is nice. I, I rediscovering my house, <laughs> which feels great. Yeah. Uh, are you, you're currently living in Philadelphia, right? I'm in Philadelphia. Uh-huh. I'm in Elkins Park. Yeah. 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 Technically outside of Philadelphia. How's Philadelphia? Is it also, is the whole city on, is it on, is the city itself also in lockdown? The city itself isn't, um, but uh, we live just outside of Philly in Montgomery County. Uh-huh. And Montgomery County is. And it's not necessarily, I mean, lockdown is a hyperbolic term. It just means that gyms, theaters, public gatherings, all that kind of stuff is closed and shut down. Yeah. And so basically grocery stores, hospitals, those kinds of things are the only things open. Yeah. So yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I had to do a couple talks. One of them has already been canceled and we're yeah. thinking through live streaming options. Yeah. Um, and the other one, the call hasn't been made yet, but I'm pretty sure it's also going to be canceled. Yeah. Yeah. And, and primarily because I, I don't want to be trapped at the airport. Yeah. Long lines, particularly with all these people coming back now. Yeah. Um, because of the panic over Trump's travel call. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of travel, um, I was looking, thinking about your own work. I was trying to figure out the best way to interview you because you have so much of your stuff out there. I saw your mm-hmm. talk and I've seen your, I saw like a version of your talk online also, which was very similar. So I was wondering, um, I know you spoke at length about your personal history on your website and in your talks, but I thought for the listeners on the podcast, if you could just quickly walk us through where you're born, where you grew up. Um, yeah. Sure. Um, I was born in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. I'm the youngest of three boys. And after my parents had me, several years after that, they started to sort of think about whether or not they should leave Port-au-Prince, whether or not they should leave Haiti. And my mom had an older sister who was already in the United States. She was already in Miami. And she had left prior already with her kids. Yeah. And she had been telling my mom that she should leave, she should leave, it was time to leave. And just about in 89, during Papadoc's, uh, uh, not Papadoc, I'm sorry, uh, Aristide's camp- campaign for presidency, things started to get a little bit rougher. Um, and I think right about then, both my parents were working for the American embassy. Right about then, my mom and dad decided that, you know, they should, that it was time to leave. Mm. And so we went through the process of applying for asylum, and back then it was called Immigration and Naturalization Services in the United States, mm-hmm. not Homeland Security, which I think is a really interesting difference. Yeah. And so we went through the process of applying for citizenship and asylum, was granted asylum and moved to the U.S. First, we moved to Miami and lived with my mom's sister 
my aunt, and then my parents rented a house on 83rd Street and Fifth Avenue in Miami, a bright lime green house. Um, And we lived there for a number of years, and then my parents saved up some money, and we bought our own house and then moved to Miami Shores, which is where they still live Uh to this day. Yeah. And so that, that was the sort of trajectory to come into the United States. I was six years old at the time. My brothers were nine and 14. And one of the things I like to talk about now is that I never, I think I was too young and I was, I was too young and my parents were so great at kind of explaining things that I never really thought about that move as something that was traumatic or difficult or Mm. I think my mom, my mom tends to be a very, um, she's an incredibly eloquent person and she explained everything to us as kids. Um, she talked to us about everything that was going on for yeah. better or worse. Um, she never really sort of, nothing was ever like too serious or too heavy yeah. to talk to the kids about. And so I don't think I ever, I don't remember being scared. I don't remember being frightened. I don't remember being anxious. I just, you know, remember thinking oh well we live here now yeah it just it just happens right (laughs) it just happened it just felt like something that was yeah it's only up until recently actually you know probably as of the last five years or so that i've started to unpack what that moment might have actually been like and felt like started to think about what were some of the decisions being made around that time that may have affected me and my brothers to the best of my ability try to uh sort of project myself back in time to think about what that might've felt like for a six-year-old yeah. to leave one country and to move to another country. I think the speed at which I kind of acculturated to American life was much quicker than my brother's. Yeah. And I think part of my practice involves retroactively kind of going back and combing through what that process was like, why that speed was necessary. Certainly it was big, part of it was because I was so young, but also what else could have happened during that time that maybe I, um, that maybe I could learn from as a 36 year old now, three decades later and having, having built this life in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. And when, as you were growing up, did you always have an interest in art? Uh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, Yes, only yeah. because I, I feel like I have to answer that question in, in parts. Yes, only because I went to um, a I went to like my neighborhood grade school, elementary mm-hmm. school, but I had a great teacher who immediately kind of picked me out uh, and me and a couple other friends and sort of labeled us as talented. <laughs> air quotes, um, and brought my parents in and told my parents that yeah. You know, I, go to this school in Miami that was a magnet school. Yeah. And when I went there, I started making art. It was a it was a magnet art high school, South Miami Elementary, a uh, magnet art elementary school. And the second or I'm sorry, the the last four hours of the day were art. Wow. And so we had uh, students in visual art, music, dance, drama, who would take math, English, science, social studies in the morning, and then from one to four would take all their art classes. Um, And so it was a highly concentrated, rigorous program. And I remember going to the audition for it and sitting in this room full of all of these, you know, third graders who were (laughs) 
drawing frantically on their <laughs> pads and thinking it was so kind of mysterious. And yeah. It, it felt so otherworldly. The room we were in was this kind of large white room. Mm-hmm, of course. Big windows. Yeah. And the, there was a long shelf, long wall of shelves, and it was uh-huh. nothing but art supplies. Uh-huh. Um, and there were two art teachers, Fran Brum and Judy Pinkham. And they both sort of seemed like, you know, regular art teachers. And I had never had a quote unquote art teacher before. I had the art section of the day, but I had yeah. never had an art teacher. And they yeah. both came in with these aprons. And, and then all of a sudden, Miss Pinkham comes over to me and my friend and she starts speaking Creole. What? And really? I mean, and, and, and she, <laughs> I had no, I was floored. I, um, and I had never, I had never seen a, a, what I perceived as a white woman speaking Creole before. Yeah. And so she comes over to me and she starts speaking Creole and she's talking about my parents who are outside waiting for me and telling me that she just spoke to my parents and that how, how proud they are of me. It was, it was mind blowing. And so I, I did my audition and got in and went to South Miami. And it was an amazing, absolutely amazing experience. But beginning with that that time, art just became a daily practice. Mm, yeah. um, it became a part of my day, it became a part of my life. Um, it became something that was inextricable from right. my education, but also from, from who I was. So I went to South Miami elementary and had art classes. When South Miami Middle and had art classes. When I was at South Miami Middle, my then art teacher, Herb Summers, who was an amazing, amazing teacher and educator, told us about New World School of the Arts. And New World was just incredible. I mean, it was, it was the, my, South Miami was great, but New World was the first time I saw people who were taking this incredibly seriously. The first time I had teachers who said, no, this could become a career, this could become a, a life for you as a really wow and so when i got to new world things changed dramatically and we had incredible teachers both academic and visual arts and 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 peers who also took it as seriously as we did so yeah so yeah i mean to to answer the question art has always just been it's just it's, it's like an appendage it's just always been a part of my life that i i actually have to sort of practice reminding myself how special and wonderful it is because it does feels like it, it just feels like it's been with me for yeah it just feels like air and water to you feels like air and water yeah yeah so then since going to those schools did you already have in mind that like you were going to be an artist no i didn't know that i wanted to be in i didn't know that i could, even could be an artist until probably probably college i mean okay. it wasn't until i got to college and saw people who i thought were professionals and saw people who you know, had, had built their careers around this thing that I realized, oh, I could, I could do this for a living. Prior to that, it was this thing that my parents supported, that my uh, mentors and teachers supported, and that I really loved doing. Yeah. That's all, that's all it was. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine anything sort of more than that. It wasn't until much, much later, during college and certainly after college, that I started to meet people who had been doing this for years. Yeah. And had built a career around it, had built a life around it. Then I, then I said, okay, I if I take this seriously, it could, it could become something quite great. Yeah, yeah. And then you went to Micah for undergrad. How, how was Micah? Micah is an incredible institution. <laughs> I mean, I think higher ed 
broadly has its faults as as we all know and i think all all institutions of higher learning need to kind of reassess how they allocate resources and how they allocate funding and what kind of support they give to an ever-growing and ever more diverse student population however micah was an incredible place yeah uh, that you know i i felt like my practice or my obsession, I'm not even going to call it a practice. I don't think at the time I thought about it as a practice. My yeah. obsession um, was supported, but also I think Micah did and does a great job of trying to think broadly and expansively about the humanities as well. Yeah. Like what, what kinds of intellectual pursuits and conceptual pursuits do artists need to support what's happening yeah. in the studio? Like we had courses on thanatology, the study of death. We had courses on toys. We had certainly the art, histori- art historical canon. Yeah. I mean, the, the classes I took at MICA were foundational. And while I was there, actually, I, when, I, when I arrived, I first thought I was gonna do painting and sculpture. And then I realized that um, that would require an extra year and I didn't wanna spend five years in school. Uh. Um, so I, I stopped uh, pursuing sculpture. And just did painting, but I did have enough AP credits to do two minors. Uh-huh. So I did a minor in uh, non-Western art history, um, okay. a minor in feminist post-structuralist feminist history. Oh wow! Okay, uh, which really kind of built the foundation for my work in graduate school. And so I was at Micah working with people like Sahila Gaussi and Suzanne Gergues and Jonathan Mann and Kerr Houston. I mean, the faculty there are just you know, star quality. And they were people who were challenging my brain just as much as I was being challenged in the studio with my my art faculty. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think that balance is something that art schools really kind of struggle to get. Um, And Micah does a really, really great job of it. That's great to hear. Yeah. I don't, I've only heard about Mike. I visited Baltimore once, but yeah. Um, I was curious, you, so you mentioned this one story in, in your talk about how your dad gave you a machete when you went to college. Did you ever, <laughs> did you ever, you, cause I, when I heard that story, I was like, it is sort of like a strange object, but then I was like, if you're going to art school, that's sort of like the perfect object for a dad to give you, right? <laughs> in terms um, of like usefulness and cultural background and everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I never, I never used it for anything utilitarian. Um, nor did it ever even show up in my work and up until probably about two or three shows ago, maybe. So probably about three, three or so, three or four okay. years ago. Um, so it just sort of stayed there. Yeah. And when I finished school, I still held on to it and it was in my closet. And then I moved to New York and it was in my closet there. And now it's at home, it's in the basement. Um, so it's this thing that I kind of hold on to. Um I, I understand the function that it plays for him is very different than yeah. it's, it's yeah. function for me. And I, I, you know, I love it and I kind of fetishize it to a certain degree, but its use is so allegorical and mythological and symbolic for me. Whereas for him, it's like a grass cutting tool or yeah. to go back even further when, when he was younger and lived on a farm, it was like a tool for which to, kill animals on the farm yeah so yeah it's this i i I love i love it for 
reasons very different from why he gave it to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, the other thing that I was thinking about in relationship to your paintings, well, the machete is a tool of a performative aspect, but also how you described you have this idea of a stage on your, a lot of your paintings. You say that you chose a stage because you felt like having a living room or a living space or bedroom seemed somehow disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was curious, is it because the stage presents itself as an artifice already? And so is that why it's somehow more genuine because it is in disingenuous to begin with? And then also building off that in terms of a stage, mm-hmm. have, you, have you ever had interest in terms of being a performer? Um, two really good questions. So to answer the first part, yes. I think with the last body of work, I, I think broadly, I like to think about space as a kind of condition of performance, mm-hmm. especially spaces that we try to occupy within a particular kind of Western system. Mm-hmm. There's an inherent performativity there that that I think I just distrust by nature. And so with the last body of work, the stage acted as a kind of symbolic motif to represent that performativity, to heighten and center mm. that performativity, because the the sort of, when you walk into a condition of a stage or a theater uh, or an amphitheater, there's nothing questioned about the, the event that's going to take place. We know that it's contrived. We mm-hmm. know that it's highly calibrated. We know that there is a system of pulleys and there's an entire team backstage that's producing this, the affect that, that we're, we're all here to believe in. Yeah. I think the space in which I like my work to sit is that that is no different from daily life <laughs> um, for all of us, but particularly for people of color yeah. who are trying to access this space of presence. Yeah authenticity in a condition that's designed for us to, to not be present. Right. And, and so with the last body of work, the stage was that space that I sort of centered all of that activity on. And then also I think um, there's something really kind of inherently faulty in trying to tell what I think are the really complex and multi-layered stories of black and brown people packaged in something as simple as I'm going to um, paint this living room or my kitchen. And now I, you know, I just have so many artist friends who do this and do it well and whose practice I love, but that never made sense for the story I was trying to tell. Mm-hmm. And so I never, I never thought about doing that. I never, that never crossed my mind. Mm. You know, when I think about growing up in Miami or, or even our house now, the, the space that, we occupy, the space that I occupy is so full of memories and identities and subjectivities that have come together, some of which are incredibly visible and present, and some of which aren't, some of which are have been experienced by me, some of which have been inherited, some of which are insisted upon me and I have no choice, <laughs> some of which are highly problematic, but I sort of desire them anyway. Yeah. Um, how do I take all of that complex input and present it or, or choose a tradition of presentation and visual language for it that tries to be honest about its complexity mm. and doesn't present a kind of false stability. Mm. Um, that's where the stage came from because the stage is inherently unstable. 
it's it's quote unquote stability is a kind of veneer that's composed of nothing but uh, flat shapes and and a very thin and shallow atmosphere that is actually quite vulnerable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the last body of work really depended on the stage for that that information. This next body of work I'm working on begins to move in a slightly different direction, but still thinking about performativity. Mm-hmm. And then the second part of your question, have I ever considered performing? No. Mm. <laughs> um, not at all. I think um, I think I, I have always been completely anti-performing in that way. In my mind, the work performs. Yeah. Uh, I stand still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as, as, as I try to get the work to be as performative and as flamboyant um, and as present as possible. Yeah. And I try to, <laughs> I try to find as much agency and stillness as I can. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, that's, that's, that's what's worked for me for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I only, brought, I only brought that up because like you are painting the stage. So I was like thinking about that. No, I mean, I have thought about collaborative projects moving forward. Yeah. Collaborating with performers and playwrights and image uh, filmmakers yeah. uh, those conversations are in the works um and so i could definitely see moving moving forward a different evolution of the work where performativity it becomes much more present but yeah. but still not through me yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no i mean i i i, I also thought about that because i never thought i would be a, performing in front of a screen and sort of kind of happened accidentally yeah so, yeah i mean i'm much more interested in being a puppet master than being on stage myself yeah yeah Never. being the direct being the director oh yeah absolutely yeah um so i guess you mentioned how you're you wanted your paintings to be as flamboyant as possible but i thought that was interesting in contrast to your description of growing up in like a very hyper masculine environment the combination of being in haiti and miami and also your own family having two older brothers i'm curious how did you navigate that as you grew up as your art developed uh, mm-hmm. in terms of playing with that tension? Mm. Um, how did I navigate it growing up? I don't know if I did. I think we, my brothers and I are very close, but as you can imagine, yeah, <laughs> growing up in a house with three boys is uh, quite a lot for, <laughs> or was quite a lot for my parents. Now we all <laughs> we're fine, but performances of masculinity uh, yeah. were common. And I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know that at the time I thought about them critically. I think I'm thinking about a lot of those um, performances critically now. Yeah. And I navigated them in ways that many of us LGBTQ folks navigated them. I was closeted for a lot of that time. And so I, I, I didn't navigate them. I muffled mm. them. Um, I suppressed them. Uh, and then as I got older, I figured out the different coping mechanisms to unpack and sort of deal with so much of that content. And, and even to think about it as content, right. Mm-hmm. To, to kind of be able to step outside of it and yeah. look critically at it and say, these are the circumstances that were taking place. And these are the reasons why people did what they did. And I did what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, it's helpful and healthy for artists to be able to do that kind of work because it helps you understand 
what kind of work your studio practice can do mm. and what kind of work your studio practice can't do. Mm. Like what kind of work needs to be done in your studio with yeah. paint and surfaces and what kind of work needs to be done with a professional? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you mean, you mean like lots of therapy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And for me, the, the, that demarcation is really, really healthy. Yeah. Now that also means that the recent body of work has gotten more and more personal, which I also really love because again, there's a, there's a difference in the ways that sort of I source through personal content as a friend and family member and the way I source through that content mm. as a narrator uh, mm-hmm. and as an author. The, the ethics involved in that process are really, really important and need to sort of be continually reassessed. And that's something that changes as, as I get older, as the work evolves. So yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that answers the question. No, I was just curious your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a good question because it's something that I think a lot of us wrestle with. Like, you know, when, when you are making work that's personal, what are, what are the boundaries involved there for you as a person, but also for you as an author, what kind of freedoms do you give yourself as, as an author that you don't necessarily have as a friend or a brother or a son mm-hmm. or a, that back and forth, I think is really, is, it's a, it's a really delicate, but also a vulnerable place. Yeah. So then when you say your more recent work is more personal, were you afraid to go into the personal in like the earlier eye pieces or the earlier abstract uh, body pieces? Cause I thought those are quite personal. Yeah. I, mean, I read I, them as that. I don't know if I was afraid. I think I was cautious. Mm. I was cautious. I think in some ways, I think the work, if I look back at the last 10 years of work, I think this, the, the, the spaces and bodies have been slowly revealing themselves to me. Mm, mm. When I got out of graduate school, the work became super non-representational. Yeah. Abstract. Yeah. Super abstract. And I had these kind of amoebic forms moving in and out of space and then slowly, but surely like it's become more and more, bodily, more and more figurative. The spaces are becoming more and more explicit. It's almost mm-hmm. as if I sort of had to deconstruct and yeah. build a kind of universe for myself, mm. which I think was necessary, which was, which was super, super necessary for me because more conventional ways of representation and storytelling weren't really working. So I kind of had to take, take a beat and rebuild all of the different elements of mm of the work. So yeah, it wasn't, I don't know if it was fear as much as a lot of caution, mm. and a lot of feeling like I wanted to do right by my. Yes. Character. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. I know that feeling. Right. Like I, like uh, all of the characters in my, the, the uh, characters in my paintings are based on people I know and people I love and mm-hmm. people I know so much about. Yeah. And so um, when they're in my studio, they're at my, they're in my care. Yeah. <laughs> when they leave the studio, they're at the dis- disposal of cultural meaning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that as much of that process as I can control and uh, shape, I'm, I'm, I'm able to do that. And I think yeah. that, that just took, that just took a long time to, to build. Yeah. Yeah. And I really, I really liked how you said that the, um, your, your paintings are sort of revealing themselves to you and the bodies are revealing themselves to you. Cause it's, I thought that was kind of a nice, nice way of saying it. Cause like you paint your bodies with eyes. Right. And so you're talking about the gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one, I was trying to find out more information about the eyes. I know you've described the eyes as a sort of way of looking at the body in a non-traditional way through this sort of non-traditional formation of eyes. Mm-hmm. But I was curious, what was like your, I know a lot of the way you describe it, I, I see it as a sort of reassessing of what the eyes are doing. But I'm curious, what was the aha moment of you actually carving into the eyes? Or what were you thinking as you were starting to carve into those eyes? Was it sort of a culmination of a lot of things that you're thinking about? Was it frustration because you're like, ah, uh, like, screw it. Like, I, I, I'm just going to draw many eyes. And then looking back, I'm really curious how that sort of began since it seems so central to the bodies that you're doing now. All of the above. Every, yeah. I mean, everything you just said is, is accurate. It came out of frustration. It came out of boredom. It came out of uh, lack of resources. <laughs> it came out of anxiety and anger. And it came out of trying to trying to think about how to represent a certain kind of empathy, mm. um, which is not a stable system. You know, there's nothing sort of necessarily stable about engineering empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an exchange. It's a circuit. It's a back and forth. It's not something that is delivered transactionally. It's a commitment to sort of sit in time and space and be persistently vulnerable with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the idea of trying to embed that into the bodies that I was, that I was painting became really, really important as I tried to make my way back to figuration hmm. uh, after working non-representationally. I think it, this coincided with a lot of witnessing young black and brown people being gunned down by state, state-sanctioned violence. And so at a time where externally I was witnessing a kind of vulnerability and lack of empathy, internally I was also kind of asking myself for that as an mm-hmm. author, as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I started carving eyes and there was one painting in particular, which I think I mentioned the last talk that started out just as a simple self portrait. Mm-hmm. And I just carved eyes. I, I carved, it was on panel and I carved just the first two eyes, but then out of, again, out of boredom, frustration, a deep desire to talk about empathy, continued carving eyes into the whole the whole facade and sort of realized that I was removing something, but also leaving something Mm. that, you know, embedding this surface with this kind of kaleidoscope of eyes wasn't just about putting something in, but it was quite literally taking something away. Mm -hmm. It was quite literally taking material away from the surface. Mm. And as a result, the surface was now able to sort of stare back at me. Yeah. So that exchange that I was talking about, really became apparent right Uh, you know it gave me something but i also gave it something yeah and that something had to it had to be sort of named right it wasn't it wasn't relying on a kind of fixed cultural symbolic form it was something that was happening in real time right and then more formally what i'm doing quite literally is making like one 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 thirty second of an of a relief on the surface Mm. Um, that responds to shadow, that responds to light, um, that changes as a viewer moves left and right or up and down. So the idea that painting is not a pictorial condition, but a physical condition became really, really apparent for me when I started carving 
uh, carving into the surface. And so all of this friction and, and productive tension sort of rushed to the surface when I carved that first painting. And I immediately sort of realized there was a lot, there's a lot more there to unpack. Um, this is the one with the back of the head and the Trayvon, Trayvon Martin quote, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I had to, I had to, I had to continue. I felt like, felt like I was scratching the surface of something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to dig deeper and it's, you know, turned into a kind of topographical mapping of sorts that really talks about how the body is mapped, but also the body can look outward externally. The body can extend beyond the singular. Um, the body can begin from a sort of primary unit and expand outward. You know, it, it, it really has helped me think about what the body is beyond this kind of fixed singular historical symbol. Right, right, right. Which I think is very appropriate as a way to think about how the bodies of black and brown people function throughout the world. Right. And then you also described how like you see these bodies as sort of your, your complicated relationship bodies is that in which, because they're in this sort of in-between space, this unstable space between like the body and the, this idea of the abstraction of the body. And I think I liked how your, 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 the representations of your body sort of play that role. Mm-hmm. Um, would you ever push that tension forward by moving, like having paintings next to each other where you'd have like complete abstraction in relationship to the body? Um, well, I guess there's a way in which I'm thinking about that right now with this new body of work. I've, I've never been a believer in the idea that there's abstraction on this side and then somewhere over there is representation. I think that that kind of siloed way of thinking about painting only benefits institutions mm-hmm. and it's completely unnatural and, and counterintuitive. I think we all think about marks, shapes, surfaces. Um, but they're all and, forms of abstraction. Right. And whether or not they come together to make cultural symbolism that we have language for, or whether or not they come together to make shapes and forms and colors that are based on processes and materials, you know, calling, trying to demarcate them as, as abstraction versus representation seems really unuseful for me. Mm. And so this new body of work that I'm working on currently brings in a lot of the language from when I was working non-representationally in combination with the body. Right. Really sort of melding and meshing those things together. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm bringing in that language as a way to talk about a kind of stripping uh, of gravity or a kind of deletion of gravity. But of course, uh, abstraction and, and abstract expressionism was a kind of leveraging of, of gravity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it, it's a, it's an, it's a really interesting kind of, conundrum to sort of find oneself in as a painter yeah and and a, a place in which to think so deeply about gravity i was having a really great conversation with a good friend of mine about gravity as the kind of preeminent condition of representation that representation really isn't about kind of naturalizing uh, or presenting a kind of naturalized version of the world via light and shadow and surface it's really about presenting a, a, a space in which gravity seems legible. Hmm. And so if we take that away hmm. and we sort of jettison all the quote unquote rules of gravity, what else can happen for hmm. form? What else can happen for space? What hmm. else can happen? 
for atmosphere if if we if we say sort of forget the rules of gravity let's let's think more broadly about this and that is really the space in which i want my paintings and my 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 bodies to sit right in particular because that space that space freed of gravity is a space that i like to think about as the kind of space of diaspora too mm. and it makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense for me and yeah. i think that's that's something i've been trying to work towards in my work for yeah. I mean, no, I just, I thought it was interesting the way you talked about, because I know for me, like, I find it hard to go back into abstraction or I guess non-representation purely uh, mm-hmm. void of symbolism. But I, I liked how you were talking about that in terms of the tension between the two. Yeah, it's it's much more elastic than, than the kind of convenient binary mm-hmm. that we usually like to present it as. Yeah, yeah. And then in relation to this, this, this idea of the diaspora, this idea of home, you said that you like this idea of mythologizing of the home, but you mm-hmm. also wanted to make sure that it's a, a source of agency rather than traumatic condition. How do you see this mythologizing of a home as a sort of agency for you? Um, I mean, I don't know that I necessarily have a choice, right? I think for many of us who immigrate from one place to another place for various reasons. Sometimes home is lost. I mean, I'm part of a sort of lucky, privileged few who, who can access what I consider to be home, right? But some people can. Mm-hmm. Um, some people can't go back home for reasons that include their safety will be at risk or their home doesn't exist anymore and has been obliterated. You know, the the, the reasons are, are plenty. And in that scenario, there is no choice but to construct a kind of mythology or a kind of spiritual grounding for whatever home might be um, so that one can find anchor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think therein lies a tremendous amount of agency because it can, it can allow you to sort of not necessarily invent, but allow you to give meaning to things that maybe necessarily didn't have meaning prior mm-hmm. and to really unpack, especially as an artist um, and as a storyteller, it, it speaking for myself, it puts me in a position of uh, really having to think sort of generously mm-hmm. about what were the things that I've lived through, what were the places I've lived, um, what were the foods that I ate, what were the people I met, and and how have they impacted my life, um, and to not be able to kind of rest on convenient traditions of history, and and to really sort of unpack that. So. I've never seen it as anything but a source, a source of agency. Like I said, it wasn't until recently that I've started to think, oh, well, maybe, maybe moving um, from one country to another for a six-year-old might have been somewhat tra- traumatic. Let yeah, me think about yeah. That. yeah. <laughs> it was that that wasn't up until recently. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, not to mention, you know, my family and I speak Creole, and you know, as a kid, certainly. I remember having difficulty speaking English or, or experiencing people who spoke English, but I also remember being out with my family and us speaking Creole deliberately to talk about people who we know didn't speak Creole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. <laughs> and so in that moment, uh, in that moment, we have a certain level of privilege, right? And so yeah. A certain kind of agency that they don't have. Yeah. And in all of that is sort of bound up and like in, in that particular moment, we've built a kind of version of home for ourselves uh-huh. and we're using it. Uh, we're, we're quite literally weaponizing it. 
I think that's I think that's powerful for I think it's powerful for everybody, but I think explicitly powerful for folks who are immigrants in this country, mm-hmm. a country that doesn't always welcome an immigrant population, especially yeah. in this moment. When we yeah, especially right, now. Right. Who demonizes us as much as we can. I try to think about all the ways in which the fact that I'm not from here actually gives me quite a bit of leverage. And, and part of that is rethinking about history as a kind of mythology rather than a kind of fixed condition. Right. And also being able to step outside having come from somewhere else too. Yeah. Um, And I guess since uh, you speak Creole with your parents and I know in your talk, you talk a lot about this idea of mistranslation also like in terms of the titles that you choose. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. And um, when you started using, you know, this idea of mistranslation in the titles. Yeah, it um, it was I think a show I had in Miami, and my my folks came, and like I said in the in the talk, um, I just I saw them. There were there were three paintings in the show that were the titles were in Creole, the rest of them were in English, and I saw them go. I saw them sort of gravitate to those paintings and stand in front of them and yeah. start speaking to each other and start telling jokes to one another. And, they had reconstructed or recreated this little tiny version of home in front of my painting simply because the legibility of the painting privileged them. And I hadn't thought about that before. That had been sort of a, admittedly, it had been a blindside. Uh, they put it together based on the symbolism of the painting or the title or both? The title, the title was in Creole. Uh, oh, okay, okay. The title was in Creole. Okay. Um, and so I got really excited and thought, well, what if I sort of make that the preeminent condition of experience. Mm. Uh, and my subsequent shows after that, all the titles were, were in Creole. Mm. Now that also opened me up to the possibility that people wouldn't speak Creole, that they wouldn't care to find out what the titles meant, that they would maybe try to translate the titles and be incorrect. I think all of that is, is okay. I think questioning the value of legibility is something that I'm I'm very much interested in the paintings doing. Yeah. Questioning the value of requiring that empathy needs understanding. Mm. Uh, and in order to access empathy, we have to sort of quote unquote understand. That seems to be a a, a pretty high bar in, in order to, to think about how to be empathetic to another human being. And so I started to think about what what would th- what would that mean if I if I left left those traps very much available. And so now the paintings don't, most of the paintings, all of the paintings really have Creole titles. But I also think there's, in addition to that kind of legibility, there's painting history in the, in the work. There's printmaking tradition in the work. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, there's so many different levels of legibility in the paintings that I hope that viewers can access them at one or the other yeah. and, and sit with that. Right. Like I said, in the, when I was up in Vermont, if, if four different thinkers and, and visitors come to my show or come to my studio and come up with four different conclusions about my work, I'm perfectly fine with that. The conversations I have with my parents mm-hmm. versus my printmaker friends versus my painter friends are very, very different. Yeah. <laughs> And, and equally fruitful, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's part of what makes painting sort of exciting. And I would hate to try to simplify all of that simply for the purpose of understanding or, or transmitting. Mm-hmm. I think representation 
can do so much more than simply transmit. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I still haven't titled any of my own works in Chinese, but I was curious about that in terms of uh, you titling them in Creole. That's why it was so interesting. I mean, it's a difficult, it's a difficult and, you know, understandably anxious place to, like I remember as a kid, always feeling kind of strange and insecure when we were out in public and we'd start speaking Creole Mm -hmm. and wondering, oh my God, what are people going to? Are they yeah. look at it differently. Are they, they're going to know that we're not from here. What's that going to mean? And th- th- therein lies a tremendous amount of anxiety around invisibility and internalized xenophobia and all sorts of things that I think the work continues to try to unpack. And so privileging that space is really critically important for me. I'm, I'm sort of in the middle, or I was in the middle of thinking through all of these things with real life consequences now, because I was working with a um, institution and they were preparing the didactic and there was a lot of anxiety around, well, visitors won't understand and we have to make sure that we, they understand. And this is a museum. And, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I eventually said, look, this is, this is part of the work. Yeah. Imagine your visitors who don't speak English um, when you prepare for months, long didactics and museum programming and education department programming that all, all leverages and centers English. Imagine a visitor who doesn't speak English and the kind of gymnastics they have to perform. Yeah, exactly. To try to understand this thing that you've, with good intention, put a tremendous amount of resources and energy into that explicitly leaves them out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and And now we're experiencing a situation where I'm doing that with Creole and you're asking me to explicate and mm, uh, yeah. perform mm-hmm. big space. Right? And I, I simply just said, no, that, that anxiety that we're experiencing as an institution and that you're, proje- you're pro- projecting that your viewers or your visitors are going to experience, sitting with that anxiety and figuring out what to do with that anxiety is part of it. So they wanted to translate your titles? Is that what they wanted or what? Um, they wanted a lot of explanation. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> and, yeah. And I just said no. Yeah. That's not what we're going to do. Yeah. Um, any plugs you want to give about upcoming shows? And you just had a show at the Crystal Bridges, which I know is is, is, is closed right now because of the COVID. Yeah. Um, uh, Allison Glenn and Lauren Haynes and Alejo Benedetti curated State of the Art 2020 at Crystal Bridges. And I have a painting in there. It's a, I'm incredible institution and beautiful space. So hopefully when all of this stuff dies down and, and we get mm-hmm. past this moment, I would love for people to go see it. I also have a solo exhibition called La Coup at the Figgy Art Museum in Davenport, Iowa. The Figgy has a long um, and uh, robust history supporting Haitian art going back decades. And I was invited to do an exhibition with them curated by uh, Vanessa Sage and their whole team. Amazing, amazing institution, beautiful space. They've been incredible. Uh, And I was actually supposed to do a talk out there this Thursday, but again, canceled because of the coronavirus. So hopefully when they reopen, people in the Iowa area will be able to go see that. And then I'm preparing for my next solo projects, which will be in the fall of this year. Mm Mm-hmm in September at James Winters Gallery and in October at M&B Gallery in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, so the announcements for those will be 
coming up shortly. Can you can you just quickly describe kind of what those new works look like? In sort of broadly speaking, I'm looking at Baroque landscapes, people like J.M.W. Turner and Burroughs and Alexander Cozens, mm-hmm. uh, artists who were painting spaces and painting these sort of grand uh, landscapes and skyscapes, particularly around the early 1800s, coinciding with the Haitian Revolution. Um, and thinking about inversions of space in, mm. in those landscapes that would center my bodies instead. Um, so looking at these spaces that were happening concurrently with this moment of Black self-actualization in the Caribbean. And so a lot of those cloudscapes, citations from a lot of the, a lot of those cloudscapes uh, will be in a lot of the new paintings. So your bodies will be the same size or will they shrink? Because when I'm thinking of those those landscapes, those landscapes, the bodies are tiny. Oh, my bodies are much larger. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so indirect competition with. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, so still thinking about performativity, but extracting extracting gravity even from the idea of the stage and and allowing my bodies to, in a sense, float above and float beyond. Yeah. Yeah. Creating your own space, basically. Yeah. 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 So that's what in the studio right now uh and i'm i'm preparing all of those now and yeah yeah and that's what i've been up to all right well thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me and uh yeah stay safe and i'll post um you know links to your website and anything else that i think would be important thank you zeron and and you too um stay safe and um hopefully this thing goes away pretty soon so we can all start uh working in real time (laughs) and not not just telecommunicating i know yeah we're not even testing here so no barely testing here i know well we don't have tests at work i think they because yeah we have a dysfunctional government oh my gosh Uh, that's uh, another podcast episode i know (laughs) thank you thank you have a good sunday you too bye bye Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Ziwon Chung. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website, www.seeingcolorpod.com, or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoy this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.